When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and we have a true rock star uh, with us today, Rob Berger, who is the deputy editor of Forbes Money Advisor, the host of the Financial Freedom Show, and the author of Retire Before Mom and Dad, The Simple Numbers Behind a Lifetime of Financial Freedom. Um, Rob is a, a friend, someone I've known from FinCon conferences, uh, and someone who's a, a true professional in our space. Rob, welcome to the show. Eric, uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Rob, you are, um, you've been instrumental to me, and, and I'm not sure everyone knows this, but you know, when I started writing for Forbes.com, it was entirely because of your uh, introduction. So if, I don't even know if you knew that, but I, I wanted to thank you um, because that's been a lot of fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's been great for, great for our, our brand and great for me, and um, so thanks, thanks again for that. Well, they're, they're lucky to have you, I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, writing for Forbes has been, I've had the same experience. It's been, it's been wonderful. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear it's been, uh, it's been great for you, too. Let's talk about your, your background. I mean, you, you've, been, um, you've been an author and a podcaster and an editor and a blogger. And a, I mean, you wear um, a whole lot of hats. Let's talk about sort of how you transitioned from uh, law school to personal finance and, um, and, and a little bit about your, your background. Sure. Well, let me, I'll give you the short version and then I'm happy to dive into whatever you want. But so, you know, very traditional sort of career path, graduated from law school, went to work for a big firm in Washington, D.C. and, you know, made some good money and, and spent most of it. And <laughs> uh, around the time I made partner at, at, at the firm, uh, I did two, two things. One, I quit. I, I, I took a big pay cut and left. Uh, and I got serious about personal finance, about investing, and my entire focus shifted from, you know, what can I buy with money uh, to how can I use money to gain my financial freedom, which really to me is the most important thing beyond the necessities that money can buy. So, uh, and that all happened in around 2003 to 2005. And that led me to start doorroller.net, a, a, a personal finance blog that I, I sold a couple of years ago. But uh, that was in 2007, and uh, you know that kind of led to a whole bunch of things that I could have never predicted. I mean, I retired from law in my 40s. I, you know, ended up writing a book uh, and a podcast. Ended up, you know, selling the blog eventually, writing for Forbes. So all these things were almost like dominoes. They just sort of one thing led to another. I, I wish I could tell you that it was part of some master plan that I came up with. 15 years ago, but that that would not be true. Uh, and, you know, so and then I end up here on your show. So that's kind of that's sort of the 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 high level view of my life over the last 25, yeah, 30 years, I guess I should say. Well, you, you are um, self-deprecating a little to say you didn't have a master plan, I think. Um, although, although it's possible that this was sort of the Forrest Gump experience where you just sort of go from one opportunity to the next. And certainly I feel that way myself at times. So very, very cool. Um, 
let's talk about your book because one of the things we talk about on this show is very much the idea that a traditional retirement is a retreat. It's a surrender. It's not good for you. And, um, and people don't thrive unless they have mission and purpose, but financial independence and financial freedom is in every way a good thing. So, um, retire before mom and dad, um, very, very, uh, unique title and, and great idea and sort of plays a little bit into the fire movement. Let's talk about the book and, and sort of where you came up with that idea. Right. So the book actually didn't start out the way it finished. The, the first idea of the book really was to talk about the simple numbers behind a lifetime of financial freedom, right? Sort of the subtitle. I actually had a working title of Money Math was uh, um, the first title, uh, which didn't make it past the editing room. But uh, it was really to focus on the power of compounding and how folks can leverage it. Because I think so many people, they look at what they're making. Uh, and then they look at some giant goal in the future, a million dollar retirement account or whatever the goal might be. And there's no, their minds just say, look, there's no way I can get from making whatever, $40,000 $40, to one or $2 million in retirement. Those two things, there's no way they can meet. The, the, the math just doesn't work. Well, it turns out the math does work. And our minds just don't intuitively grasp the power of compounding. And that was really the heart of the book when I started it. But I concluded that most people don't like math. So, you know, you need to know a little math, but most people don't really want to talk about math all day long. And so I thought, well, how can I present this in a way that actually focuses on what you can achieve if you do these things and not just the numbers? And so that's kind of where it came out. And I ended up calling it or titling it Retire Before Mom and Dad. It's really not a fire book. I mean, certainly you can read it and understand the fire principles and how to achieve them. Uh, it's really a do smart things with your money when you're young. Uh, and if you're past young, <laughs> whatever that is, then it, there's still time. You should still do smart things with your money. But, but the ultimate idea was try to get 20-year-olds 20, 20 to read the book. Uh, if 20-year-olds if there, if 20 today are like I was in my 20s, I would have never read this book. I wasn't focused on it until I had a little more life experience. But I'm, I'm trying to reach people before they have time to screw up their finances. That was the, sort of the goal uh, in the book. But frankly, it's a timeless book. I mean, anyone in, in whatever stage of life, I think, could benefit from it. But that was sort of the idea behind the title and sort of the way I framed the issues. Uh, I like Retire Before Mom and Dad a lot better than Money Math. I'm not yeah, going to lie. Yeah. And, and I like math, and I still like it better. Um, I, I have a daughter in fifth grade and have been doing some math homework at night, um, not by myself, <laughs> fortunately, but I'm relearning algebra and, um, you know, some of it's coming back to me. So that's good. Um, in, in terms of the, the idea of making good decisions young, I get the sense that this generation, millennials and even more so Zs, I think understand that they're free agents in a different way than we did as Gen Xers and than our folks did as boomers. You know, the idea of working for a company for 30 years and getting a pension and a gold watch are, are long gone. Um, and this idea that um, Social Security is somehow supposed to retire you is is completely debunked. And, and I think this entire generation realizes that's not a good plan. So um, I, hopefully you're going to get some readership from, from younger people who say, I, I do want to make these decisions um, younger so that I can have a... a, a a life of more freedom. I, I think these generations are looking for freedom in a hundred different ways, financially being one of them. Don't you think there's a, a shift happening in that space? I, I think there are a couple of things that are changing. I certainly agree with you that there is a sense of freedom uh, 
in that, as you say, most people now don't go and work for the same company with a pension for 30 years. And, and, but with freedom, you know, freedom, there's two sides to freedom. I mean, freedom is certainly a good thing, but it also comes with a lot of responsibility. And, uh, you know, and I think the, the risk we have right now, and one of the things that I, I address in the book is that I think there's a lot of folks that are discouraged. Yes, they have freedom, but, but then, you know, they don't have a pension and they don't have a solid job and they're, they're freelancing or they're jumping from job to job. And that sort of can generate a sense of insecurity. And I think there's this underlying feeling that the system, whatever that means to someone, uh, it is preventing them from really achieving their goals. They can't, with the current system, they can't, they can't do what their parents did, for example, or what, the, what their grandparents did. And I try to, to, to debunk that in the book. It's not, and, and, and I don't try to pretend that we don't have challenges. Every generation has challenges, uh, for sure. Uh, but I think we have a lot more power over our careers and our finances, our money, than some would, would have us believe. And that really is a big focus of the book. And what I walk through and say, look, you have far more control over your financial f- future, you know, than some, some pundits might want you to believe. And you need to realize that and take control of those areas of your life that you do have control. Of course, there's always going to be things in our lives that are beyond our control. That's just, you know, part of the bargain, I guess. But we control a lot. And I think that's what we need to focus on. There's a, there's a, I think a, a misconception when you talk about the system or, or what have you, that, that the, the system somehow is holding folks down. Um, but it is daunting. And, and I think figuring out where to start, I mean, you're right. When someone says, you know, in order to retire, you're going to need $2 million or $5 million or $10 million, whatever the, the math is, that number looks so outrageous. Right. Um, and yet, and, and yet, if you are able to do the math and to understand the compounding and to understand the geometric or exponential growth as opposed to linear growth, um, now I sound like my, my daughter's math teacher, I think. But if you can, if you can understand the way that curve looks, um, every year earlier that you begin is a very big deal. Yeah. You, you know, and, and you, look at the, you look at the mountain chart, and I actually think accumulating money um, is a relatively simple math concept. I mean, you know, you put X dollars in an account for Y years and earn Z percent and voila, right? Um, the bigger challenge, I think, is to figure out what that money can buy you because every dollar is not the same. A dollar sitting in an IRA is not the same as a dollar sitting in your, in your shoebox because of the way taxes are still due on it. It's almost like having a dollar with a mortgage on it. Um, and people have, I think, uh, really where people struggle is figuring out how to take that mountain of money that they're going to create or have created and how to turn it into income they can't outlive because the greatest fear isn't necessarily being young and broke, it's being old and broke. Well, I've actually spent, it's really not a focus of that book, but um, I've spent a, a significant amount of time, as I know you have, researching and studying that very issue. How do we think about transitioning from living off of an income to living off of a portfolio of investments and maybe social security, maybe a pension. Uh, And emotionally, and I speak now from some experience, although I've still not started spending my investments, I thought I would be by now when I sold my business. Um, Once again, more dominoes fell and I don't have to spend my investments at the moment. 
But boy, I'll tell you, psychologically, it's a big hurdle to get over. I don't like the idea of dipping into the Vanguard account at all. And, you know, the 4% rule, um, and I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but I think it's a perfectly fine way to think about retirement spending, but I don't think it's actually a very good way to actually spend money in retirement. Um, and uh, But the good news is I think there are a lot of good alternatives. I don't know if we want to go into that, but you're absolutely right that that transition is both emotionally difficult and, you know, it's difficult from a tax perspective, depending on your portfolio, uh, you know, so, yeah, and then a lot of other issues come, in, end of life issues, um, inheritance for, for your loved ones, if that's part of your plan. I mean, it, it can get pretty complicated quickly. I would tend to agree with you. And I think often the value of professional advice is amplified at the moment where you're making some of those big decisions. Um, because that, that is something we've never been trained to do. I think all of us instinctively understand savings or even basic investing from a reasonably young age. But this idea of transitioning psychologically and behaviorally to something, none of us want to be on fixed income. We've seen generations do that and it doesn't end well. I mean, the reason why people wear pants that are 30 years old is because they're on fixed income. You know, it's, it's not something any of us want to visualize. Um, the 4% rule is, as a rule of thumb, I would agree with you, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and it works great if you promise to only live, say, 25 to 30 years. Um, but if, if the possibility exists that you're, you could live a lot longer than that, um, it is a recipe that, that won't work. And it's interesting because the book that I just put out with, uh, you know, uh, with the same title as our podcast, Don't Retire, Graduate, has a full section on strategies for, for income because I do think it's one of the things that's most complicated. How do you do that and how do you get past it psychologically? Have you in your, either in your podcast or in your, your work with professional finance and so forth, have you seen where folks will stash away and build, for example, an IRA for their entire working lives and then they're aggravated by required minimum distributions because they don't want to pay taxes? Oh, sure. I mean, the, 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 the disdain of paying taxes overrides the ability to enjoy using your own money that you've worked all your life to save. Well, and also, I you need to keep your eye on the ultimate picture, the, the or the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not really to pay as little in taxes as you can. I mean, that's maybe a goal, right? But um, and the ultimate goal isn't even a number, in my view. I mean, the ultimate goal is how you live your life, and obviously, money is a part of that. And you know, you can take, you can, as you know, you can. There are tax strategies you can use uh, that reduce your tax burden, and you should do that. Um, you know, whether it's converting some traditional to Roth after you uh, retire, but before you hit 70 and a half, I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do. But yeah, I mean, the tax planning when you hit retirement is is daunting. There's no question about it. But but I think it's also quite doable with, you know, some people I think can do it quite well without professional help and others need it. And that's okay. I, I would totally agree with you. There's a there's definitely Folks who have the acumen and desire to, to do it themselves certainly have the tools. There's plenty of tools and plenty of research and plenty of opportunity. Um, and other people, it's kind of like saying uh, you can go to the gym on your own or you can have a trainer. I need a trainer or I don't go. If I have an appointment, I show up. If I don't have an appointment, I find a reason not to work out. And that's that might be why I have a few extra LBs, Rob, but that's not really what the show yeah, is about. Yeah. Well, um, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you, though, you know, you mentioned the the not, the the fear or unwillingness or lack of desire, I guess, I don't know, to pay taxes on an RMD. 
Certainly true. I tell you what I've seen though is that you know folks uh, don't want to actually sell their investments to fund retirement. They don't want to sell shares of a mutual fund, you know, shares of a company, and instead they want to move their portfolio in such a way that it produces enough income through interest and dividends to fund retirement. And I personally think that is a big mistake. I think the focus, and this is where I'm probably different than most, maybe even you, most advisors, I think, and most folks that think about this sort of issue. But I think when you, when you focus on income investing, uh, you generally end up with a portfolio that whose total return, of course, is lower. Uh, it may be a little more stable, but I don't think you actually need that stability. And in fact, when you look at all of the studies, including the 4% rule, um, and the work that Bengen did in 94, and he has other papers in 96, had another paper come out this year. Um, none of his analysis assumes an income or dividend investing approach at all. It's, total, it's a total return approach with rebalancing once a year. And Kitsi's, you know, his analysis, same thing. Um, anyway, I don't, again, I don't know how, <laughs> if we want to go down that rabbit hole. But, well, no, I, I, uh, I think we're totally aligned. In fact, I, I read I read Kitsis regularly and, and he, he's a friend and it's nice that he's local or, or, or had been for many, many years. Um, in terms of um, in terms of that discussion, I totally agree with you. I think particularly in this low yield environment, it's very tough to get um, uh, income producing securities that would provide you with the type of, uh, of, of um, stability even that you want. Um, and interest rates are, they're so low. And they're poised to stay there for a while. At least that's what the Fed seems to be indicating. And if they stay this low, that's not gonna improve. And yet, for folks who own bonds, when interest rates go back up, the bond values aren't gonna look real pretty either. And we're gonna need to hold them till maturity do you think people what what are you what are you suggesting that folks do folks who are um, uh, potentially already living on those portfolios who do want right. to have some yield um, where do you put the money cash is paying nothing bonds are paying next to nothing real estate is scary because of covid and other things um, equities some some believe they're overheated others believe they're just getting started uh, wh but what do you what are you advising folks to do well, yeah, it's a great question. So a couple of things. One, I would say don't worry about COVID. And what I mean by that is uh, from an investment perspective, even if you're in retirement, you know, let's say you're 70 and you're assuming a life expectancy of 90 or 95. I mean, as difficult as COVID is now, uh, we will get through it and then it will no longer be an issue. Uh, now, I don't know when that will happen. I wish I did. Maybe yeah. it's a year or two from now before it's really back to normal. But I, I wouldn't rearrange my investment portfolio because of, of, of COVID. I also wouldn't rearrange my investment portfolio because of low yields. If you look back, you know, again, again just using Benjamin as an example, he goes all the way back to 1926 for his analysis. So, you know, his analysis goes through the great, you know, the stock market crash, the Great Depression, the terrible markets at the end of the 30s, World War II, Korea and Vietnam, you know, 9/11. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And by the way, the four percent comes from not an average, but the absolute worst case scenario, which I think was 1968. So, you know, the scenario we have now is actually not that bad at all. Yes, yields are really low, that's true, but so is inflation. I mean, the worst thing you could have is 15% inflation. Then you'd have, <laughs> then we might be having a different kind of discussion. Uh, but yeah, yields are low, but inflation is so low. So I wouldn't worry about trying to produce income. You've got a uh, investment portfolio. I think 
one thing that that you need to keep is you need to have at least 50% in equities in retirement. I mean, that was sort of the minimum that Benjamin found, and I think that's generally still true today. I think most of the analysis pegs it probably at 60 to 65%. Um, yeah, it could vary from person to person, but you'd still need to have a good portion in equities. I would keep, personally, I would keep my bonds on the lower side of the, the yield curve. I mean, most of mine are intermediate term. So yes, they'll go down in value if interest rates go up, but they probably won't get clobbered, uh, particularly if interest rates don't go up quickly. Um, and, you know, you enjoy the low inflation. And it, so that's yes. generally, I, all of which is to say, I, my advice is don't don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, you know, Yes, no, that is very, very sage advice most of the time. Um, and, and we are trained to think that you need to be doing something. And quite frankly, I think doing nothing is often the best thing because it, it does potentially reduce costs or taxes or emotional mistakes or, or even timing issues. So if you have a, a, a portfolio that you're comfortable with and that, that is designed to weather the storm, you weather the storm. Um, what, about, uh, what about the idea of asset segregation? I'm curious your thoughts on this because um, it just, just not, not, to, not to pigeonhole you in any way, but I, I tend to be a fan in situations where the 4% rule may not be best. Um, where you segregate various types of assets for various types of time frames, such like, that you like can the, ride the bucket out. strategy. Yeah, I mean that to, to be. Uh, I'm trying to be more graceful than that, Rob. But yes, it's it's <laughs> it is having buckets for time periods and basically saying, look, we want to be kid gloves for the next sixty months or so, and yep. then we want to have something income producing, reasonably stable for the next five years or so. But then equities, you can hold them if if you're not going to touch them for ten years potentially. Um, almost any study would show you that that's a reasonable time frame not to not to worry about. So, are you a fan well, of segregation of assets? That's a great question, and the answer is I am not a fan at all. Okay. And when I first heard, I still maybe it's because I'm originally from Ohio and the cornfields, but I still call it the bucket strategy. But uh, when I first heard it, I thought that's perfect. That's what I'm going to do. I, you know, and I started thinking about it in those terms. And as I dug in and studied it, I concluded that it's absolutely. It sounds great. But it, it's really not a good approach, and, and, and here's why. Sort of the standard bucket approach might have, let's say, one to two years in cash, uh, maybe, I'll call it five years in sort of intermediate-term bonds, uh, you know, and then maybe the rest in equities or, or, or something like that, and there's different variations. And the theory is, hey, if the equities are down, they get clobbered, that's okay. You don't have to sell any because you don't need that money for, in, in this hypothetical, what, for seven years, right? You can live off cash for two and bonds for five. So you know, equities could get clobbered and you don't have to sell low, which we all know that's not what you want to do. Well, the problem with that is there's a couple of problems. First of all, in that scenario, you're right. You don't want to sell equities. What do you want to do? You want to buy them. <laughs> that's what you want to right. do, except that in the right. bucket strategy, the buckets never flow towards the equity. They always flow down towards the cash. And then it raises the question, well, okay, Let's say equities are down 15% this year. You've just spent a year of your cash, so now you're down to just one year. Uh, do, you move, do you move equities to the bond or the cash bucket or not? How do you, and how do you even begin to make that decision? And, and here's the reality. If you simply take money out of your portfolio each year, let's say to fund an entire year, uh, and you would pick the accounts, I think, based on tax strategy, not allocation. 
Because mm-hmm. what you're going to do after you pull out your, let's say, $50,000 or whatever the number is to live on, what are you going to do? You're going to rebalance. Uh, so it doesn't really matter. Again, taxes, it matters. But, but from an asset allocation perspective, it doesn't matter where you take it out of, because as soon as you take it out, you're then going to rebalance. So you know, your, your portfolio is going to be back to your asset allocation. And if, that, if stocks are down that year, uh, so that your whatever, 65% allocation of stocks is now 60%, you, by rebalancing, what are you going to do? You're going to buy more stocks, which is exactly what you should be doing because stocks are down. So uh, I think for some, there's a simplicity appeal to the bucket strategy. It kind of fits in our brain. It makes sense. But when you actually start to use it and shift assets from one bucket to the next, you're like, it, it starts to fall apart. And so, you know, some talk about a two bucket strategy where you keep a year in cash. I mean, that may be fine from just a mechanical perspective. You could do it every six months, every quarter. You know, uh, I don't really feel strongly about that. But yeah, I've really come to the conclusion that, that the bucket strategy is not, not a great approach. And, okay. I, and again, I think that I'm probably in the minority, in the well, minority there as well. I, I think both the total return strategy and the asset segregation strategy can work depending on how hard you have to pull on your principal. You know, if you've, it, it, I like the total return strategy when you need two or three percent. I like it less at four, and I really don't like it at five. So there, there's sort of that piece. Um, so let's talk about the the five. That, that's interesting though, because one could yeah. argue that if it, if you're starting with a five percent withdrawal rate, yep, it's all the more important to focus on total return because you're going to need it <laughs> not to run out of money. But anyway, you know, it's an it's an interesting conundrum, and it's kind of like the active versus passive debate or yeah. the strategic yeah. versus tactical debate. It'll rage forever. Yeah, um, I, sure. I think there's a place for both. But but we've got a 500 pound elephant in the room and we've got to deal Uh-oh. with it. Um, where do you fall on either annuity vehicles or annuitization strategies? Right. So by and large, so annuity is really nothing but an insurance product. And my view is you want to buy the insurance that you absolutely have to have and not a nickel more. Right. Because insurance ultimately, you know, is going to be a loss. I mean, you're protecting against some risk. In the case of an annuity, say, you know, fixed income annuity, you're protecting against market risk. Maybe, I guess you're protecting against longevity risk, right? That you live longer than you expect. Um, and so I, I think there is a place for them uh, for some, but not for most people. I think most people yeah. don't need them. And, and the downside to them, I mean, you've, I guess you're, you're exchanging market and longevity risk in part for credit risk, depending on where you buy it. That may or may not be a significant uh, concern. But you're also, of course, losing control of the money. Uh, and if you die, you know, earlier than expected, you know, there are different kinds of annuities, but by and large for sort of your standard vanilla fixed income annuity, none of that goes to your heirs, which may be important to you. Um, so I, I don't, I, I think for some folks it may make sense, uh, but particularly if you've got, you know, you're going to have social security, certainly if you have a pension, I don't know that you need any more annuitization of your portfolio, um, and I would say for the vast majority of people, uh, they don't need them. And then I'm totally opposed to any sort of, you know, market indexed, complicated annuities. I think the fees and so forth um, pretty much rule them out for everyone. 
Um, I think we're mostly very aligned there. Um, annuitization is really sort of a last resort, although it can work for, for cases where you have older folks with no heirs, um, that, that there yeah. are certainly situations. But you're right, the loss of control is significant. And then when you start talking equity index stuff, it gets very expensive very quickly. And, um, you know, I, I, I believe insurance is designed to pass risk you can't bear. Uh, and so for you to say not a nickel more makes perfect sense. You, you don't yeah, being yeah. overinsured, being insurance poor or being house poor or being any kind of poor just doesn't sound like a good plan. So Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, it gives them some comfort. And I understand that, you, you know, the emotional side of money. Uh, and so there's that. But you just have to be careful that your emotions don't cost you too much. <laughs> so. Well, you, you've I, I'm, I'm so sad that our show is almost over because you've given us some some great advice and you've helped some of the debates that we like to have on this show. And frankly, in our firm and with clients and with, uh, you know, with other advisors. Those debates are going to rage forever, but I do think they're interesting, um, both academically and in uh, real life situations. So we're at the point where we need an extra credit assignment from you. We need that one thing um, that folks should do saying, you know, I just spent an, a, a half an hour with Eric and Rob and Rob said I should do this as my, my step toward freedom. Well, I, I, there's a lot of things you could do, but for one, I would say, be able to answer this question. What are the fees I'm paying for uh, my investment portfolio, whether it's advisor fees, mutual fund fees, what are they and how much will they cost me over a long period of time? That would be, okay. I guess, the homework assignment. But I talk to plenty of people that say, I have no earthly idea what my investments cost me, whether they're investing with help or investing on their own. And um, fees, you know, you talk about a 4% rule or a 5% rule when you add in you know, 1% in fees or even more that, you know, that takes a big hit out of that 4% analysis. So that would be my, my, my one takeaway that folks could do to, uh, to help their, uh, their journey to retirement. I think, I think you're right in, uh, on multiple cases there. It's a great assignment. I do think it's important for folks to understand what they're paying. Um, and to make sure that they are receiving reasonable value or reasonable outcomes for that fee, whether it's uh, advice-based or whether it's expense ratio-based. A lot of it's not transparent still to this day. It shocks me how hard you have to dig sometimes to figure out what you're paying, especially in 401k plans. Um, people really, they, they feel free because they're not seeing something debited from their account. They're distinctly not free. So uh, good advice, Rob. Um, where can people learn more about you and, uh, and follow you and listen to your podcast and see your, your Forbes articles and all those good things? Well, if they go to just robberger.com, uh, uh, that would be the place and then they can find links to everything else. Uh, so that's probably the easiest way. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, folks, check out robberger.com and check his articles out on, on Forbes. Listen to his show. He's got a lot of good things to say, and, uh, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. For all our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and post comments and reviews. Don't Retire, Graduate is a book available in print, Kindle, and audio formats. For more information or to order your copy, go to brotmanmedia.com books or search for Eric Brotman on Amazon.com. To learn more about BFG Financial Advisors, visit us on social media or at BFGFA.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, 
Let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.